0: Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama spent a week together in India in 2015. There's a record of their conversation together on iPlayer, and we can hear part of it now, starting with the introduction.
1: The Tibetan people are being exterminated. Their culture and religion are being
2: stamped out. Since he was four years old, the Dalai Lama was trained to lead his people but lost control of his country to the Chinese government and has led his people from exile for decades.
3: Thank you. Amid
4: tear gas and police dogs, Desmond Tutu led a people against apartheid.
5: The idea of freedom has not yet come to this last remaining bastion of white supremacy in Africa.
2: When people decide to be free, absolutely nothing is going to stop them from becoming free. Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa came to meet the Dalai Lama. An historic meeting of men whose lifelong quests for justice and self-determination for their people garnered each the Nobel Prize for Peace.
6: And One of the most fascinating things about that week together was that when we asked people to send us their questions, we got thousands of responses. They definitely were interested in the big questions of why we're here the nature of life and uh, about mortality.
4: There's a question of
2: um, how you think about your own deaths. That for a very long time the thought of my demise (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, brought a great deal of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I've had a number of uh, near-fatal illnesses. Uh, As a a child I, I I had polio uh, and my father went off to buy buy the the, the wood for making my coffin, mm. and and then in my teenage years I I developed TB. I was I was quite surprised. After I said, God, if this is curtains for me, uh, then it's okay. I have to admit that I was surprised at the calm and the peace that came over me. Um, This is a fact of life. Death is a fact of life.
0: Desmond Tutu worked together with Nelson Mandela in South Africa to bring an end to the apartheid system. Tutu talks about the effect which incarceration had on Nelson Mandela's attitude towards his captors.
2: That suffering in prison helped him to become more magnanimous, willing to listen to the other side, to see the people he regarded as enemy. Uh, You know, they too were human beings, who had fears, expectations, and they had been molded by their society. It's like being put in a kind of fiery furnace to be refined. And in fact, in in some ways, some suffering, maybe even intense suffering, is a necessary ingredient for developing compassion.
7: I think, uh, think you have mentioned, I think very right. You see, suffering, problem. Actually, it's the opportunity testing you. is mm. yes. some, you a Tibetan, uh, who spent many years in Chinese gulag. Gulag, difficult, hard labor, really very, very immensely say torture. He told me during those 18 years difficult period he facing some dangers. I thought danger may be on his life. Hmm. Then I asked what kind of danger? He told me danger of losing compassion towards those Chinese perpetrators.
0: The Dalai Lama prides himself on always being open to new ideas particularly about science. He persuaded psychologist Dr Richard Davidson to conduct an experiment to see the effects of prayer and meditation. Desmond Tutor's daughter is also a minister and she finishes by talking about the value of prayer.
8: I began my career studying the uh, disturbed mind and when I met His Holiness for the first time He challenged me in a very direct way, and he said, why can't you use the same tools of modern neuroscience that you've been using to study depression and anxiety and fear? Why can't you use those same tools to study kindness and to study compassion? When we first proposed this, most people looked at us like we were absolutely nuts. But here's the experiment. What we do is we bring people into the laboratory, and we put a a kind of metal plate that we strap onto a person's wrist. And through this plate, we can circulate water very, very rapidly. And we can regulate the temperature of the water. And I could tell you that this is damn hot. It feels like it's burning your skin. So we just give them one experience of this so that they know what we're talking about. Uh, They have the direct experience. Then we bring them into the formal experiment and they're in the MRI scanner. And we tell them we're gonna give them two tones. When they hear one tone, which is a high-pitched tone, beep, then they know that in 10 seconds, they're gonna get zapped with this very painful stimulus. If they hear a low tone, boop, they know that they will just feel warm, but it won't be hot. Very simple. So we have people who've meditated and we have controls. People who've never meditated, their age and gender matched, and they go through this experiment. Now, we know where in the brain the pain circuits reside, so we know exactly where to look. And when we look at those circuits in the non-meditating controls, the moment we present the high-pitched tone, beep, their brain responds as if it received the actual pain. So nothing's happened other than they got a tone but their brains are responding as if they got the heat. When you do that with the meditators, they receive the tone, beep, nothing happens. There's absolutely no significant change in the pain matrix, they're flat. Then when the actual heat comes on, both groups respond. But then as soon as the pain goes off, the meditators come right back down to baseline. Whereas the controls, persist. Their pain circuits are still reverberating. It's as if they can't shut them off. They're ruminating about the pain. The conclusion that our work has led us to, very simply, but we think it's a very radical conclusion, and that is that well-being is a skill. Well-being can actually be learned. It can be nurtured, and it's a skill that can enable us to live a happier life. When human beings first evolved on this planet, none of us were brushing our teeth. This is a learned behavior. It's not part of our genome. And if we spent even the short amount of time that we spend every day brushing our teeth, nurturing our mind, this world would be a very different place.
7: You see, mentally, very, very helpful to keep a calm mind. So I think uh, every people, see, have this sort of same sort of uh, put, same sort of potential capacity.
2: His Holiness and my dad are both people who have very strong disciplines of of prayer and and quiet time. When I went to seminary and was ordained, I had the experience of learning my dad's language, in a way, that allowed me to have a different quality of conversation with him. The most important lesson that I have taken is taking time for prayer, and taking time for quiet. For him, that's the first priority and everything else flows from that.
1: We shall sing on that beautiful shore The melodious songs of the blessed And our spirit shall sorrow no more Not a sigh for the blessing of rest In the sweet by and
9: by We shall meet on that beautiful shore
1: We shall meet on that beautiful shore To our bountiful Father above We will offer the tribute of praise For the glorious gift of His love And the blessings that hallow our days.
0: talks to Francesco de Mosto. Francesco comes from an ancient Venetian family and he lives in a palazzo in Venice with his wife Jane. Francesco is an architect who helped to restore the opera house in Venice after a fire. Jane is an English
5: woman. She's devoted her life to saving Venice from the devastating floods. With his shock of white hair, boundless energy and unmistakable accent, Francesco D'Amosto is for many of us the quintessential Venetian. His distant ancestors were some of the first settlers to colonise the swampy islands, which were to become Venice. Fleeing Attila the Hun in the 5th century and since then... The D'Armosto family has been at the forefront of Venetian public life. One of the team of architects who restored the Opera House in Venice after a devastating fire in 1996... Francesco shot to fame with his BBC television series Exploring Venice, Italy and the Mediterranean. And with his English wife Jane, he's at the heart of the campaign to find a sustainable future for this most beautiful and vulnerable city. Francesco, tell me about your wife Jane. She's an environmental scientist who's co-written a book about the Venetian lagoon's flood defences, a huge concern as the sea levels rise with climate change. Yeah,
3: she was born in South Africa. She lived in uh, London, in England. And when she came here, she understood this was the place that she has to save it. Because she saw in in the lagoon of Venice, in, in the nature and everything. And she's giving her life to this. And she really believed against all odds that is coming, all the problems. She never stops. She's never disarmed and she goes on without, uh, uh, without, maybe she has doubts, but she doesn't show it. She goes on, she's strong, she is, is something that I really admire. This is her place, this is our planet, and we have to go on, we have to try.
5: At least. What does she think should be done to protect the city?
3: boy, in this moment she is working quite well with an NGO, it's called We Are Here Venice. Now she won a, a project from the European Council to make a, re, a living again in the salt marshes that uh, defend uh, the lagoon from the sea. So now she's starting all the, the plan because it's very interesting because when you recreate soil marshes, it's very important that the plant, you put them in the soil marshes, they make their roots, and so the soil marshes will resist to the erosion. But at the same time, not only that is great, but the salt marshes and the plants, they attract the CO2, and they put inside their roots, so it doesn't go out. Like in a forest, when the leaves goes down and they go rotten, they create CO2. Instead, these plants that are in the lagoon, they never go rotten, so they never create CO2. But it's important to save the lagoon, because if we don't save the lagoon, also the town is lost.
5: Are there other environmental threats that face Venice apart from the sea? Huh. Uh, the, the, the pollution of the big uh, cruise ships that
3: for the pandemic, they stopped for a while. Let's see what is happening next, because uh, if now they are going to... They they have taken out... Uh, there is a picture of my wife that is fighting against the cruise ships that went all over the world. It was quite funny. Quite strong picture, very iconic. On the front, there is this big cruise ship that is passing on, and then you see... This woman that is rowing and is like watching the cruise ship, listen, I'm here, come. Come on, come against me, I'm here, I'm waiting for you.
5: Have you managed to ban the cruise ships at all? Because there was talk of that.
3: They stopped the cruise ship to pass in front of St. Mark, but they want to maintain them inside the lagoon. So we will have all the pollution of them and uh, they are dredging the channels to make that entering in. So I don't know anymore which is worst. I think there is a lot of uh, cities uh, around the world that they don't want anymore, these big ships arriving. It's more sad now, in the last uh, months, when you see all the shop completely closed, that they lost their job and they had to go away. That makes me more sad.
5: Katharina Spreckelson was the soloist in the slow movement from Alessandro Marcello's Oboe Concerto in D minor with Harry Bickett directing the English concert. Larry Gentis has produced a series of
0: talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, again, he looks at the problems Moses faced when trying to lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land.
6: Hello, everyone. This is Moses again, and I'll continue with my story starting with just after my descent from the mountain when God gave me the Ten Commandments. It was a horrible time for all of us. Granted, 40 days is a long time for someone to be absent, and in the desert mountains it's easy to just surmise that someone's probably dead. What I had a problem was how quickly the people reverted to their unbelieving ways, and especially that even Aaron was caught up in it. I don't understand how they could see God's mighty power time and again over months, And then turn away from him. after this, the Lord spoke to me, saying, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up, from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. So, God was going to keep his promise to give us a fertile land, but he wasn't going with us because of our disobedience. When I told the people this, they were devastated and went into mourning. They took off all their festive clothing and ornaments. From that time on, I pitched a tent outside the camp where God and I would meet. Whenever I entered into the tent, God put a pillar of cloud at the entrance so the people would know I was meeting with him, and they worshipped at the entrance of the tent whilst I was with him. The Lord spoke to me just as a man speaks to his friend, oh, and I treasured these times as no other. Every time I left the tent, when the meeting was over, I chose a faithful young man named Joshua to stay in the tent to guard it. Soon after, I was going to try to convince God to change his mind and go with us to the land of Canaan try to imagine it. Here I am, just a man, and I'm trying to present a case to someone who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and a perfect judge. And he's absolutely right. The people are an obstinate, quarreling, murmuring, and complaining people. It's just that I couldn't conceive of God having got us this far and not getting us all the way there. So I said, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I might find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? He answered me quite quickly. I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And just after this, I asked something really astounding, that he would show me his glory. He could have struck me down for such audacity, but he didn't. He replied, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You cannot see my face. For no man can see my face and live, but behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Well, I can't describe what happened, so I won't even try. Words truly fail me. The Lord then instructed me to engrave the Ten Commandments that had been broken over the golden calf, so I returned to the mountaintop to do this. God took his time to give me certain laws concerning the Sabbath day of worship and rest, some ways to treat animals and to keep ourselves free from idols. But when I came down from the mountain, I felt different somehow, and when I met with the people, they were behaving strangely around me, and I I didn't know why. Well, my brother Aaron approached me and told me the reason why. Apparently, my face was shining so brightly that the people couldn't look at me. From that time on, I didn't go out amongst them without a veil over my face because the people couldn't bear it. Meanwhile, God gave us the prescriptions for the tent of meeting in the tabernacle, and once it was finished, the glory of the Lord shone in it so brightly that not even I could enter it. And that was when things got really interesting.
4: Even if you please Well